The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. When a Kurdish person in Turkey really starts to emphasize their Kurdish identity or their Kurdish nationalism, there's a stigma around that. And in politics, that's brought a lot of Kurdish politicians into trouble with the state. My argument is if there is a true democracy or if Kurds are able to carry out politics in Turkey as they wish, then they don't necessarily want or need an independent Kurdish state. In this episode, the Kurdish struggle for a seat at the table in Turkey. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia research specialist at the University of Melbourne. The Kurdish struggle for comprehensive political rights and recognition in Turkey has been long and difficult, marked by extended periods of cultural repression, violent separatism and brutal state reprisal, yet also punctuated by brief moments of optimism for genuine political acceptance. Turkey's Kurds share an ethnicity and language with the Kurds of neighbouring Iraq, Iran and Syria, but their history and status as the largest minority in Turkey, a state with little tolerance for those who stray from the dominant nationalist narrative, have presented the Kurds with a unique set of challenges. So how do Kurds navigate Turkey's often hostile domestic political environment? How have their aspirations and their collective actions transformed over the years as the politics of Turkey itself has evolved? And is it even fair to speak of Turkey's Kurds as being of one mind in their social and political choices? Joining us to discuss the state of Kurdish affairs in Turkey is Monash University politics and international relations expert Dr William Gourlay and Asia Institute Turkish politics researcher Dr Tezjan Gumush. Welcome, Will, and welcome back, Tez. Pleasure to be here. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Before we step back and look at some of the recent history, can you give us a, a sense of how Kurds are positioned in Turkey today, Tez, a country which increasingly is heading down an authoritarian road. So the southeast, where the Kurds are the main ethnic group, what we've seen under Erdogan's authoritarianism is since the 2016 coup attempt, a massive sort of attack and repression against those areas which have municipalities run by pro-Kurdish parties. What we're seeing is there is a massive level of repression towards Kurds politically at this point in time in Turkey. Indeed, towards really any group. Yes, exactly. So this is part of the broader context of what's happening in Turkey. Any sort of form of critics or opposition, political opposition, Erdogan and the government is using the full force of the judiciary and the state's powers to undermine or oppress or silence any opposition and criticism. Well, how would you describe the position of Kurds in Turkey today? And indeed, what's day-to-day life like? for Kurds in Turkey. I think Tez is correct in that the political repression that is happening in Turkey happens across the board and there are many groups within Turkey, be they secular, liberal, left-leaning, who are struggling or even anyone who's opposed to the government. As to the Kurds, probably the most important issue currently is the fact that Kurdish mayors in southeastern cities have been removed 
on accusations of supporting a terrorist organisation, the PKK, which I'm sure we'll deal with in some detail. So in that sense, the political avenues for Kurds have been shut off because a lot of these removals seem relatively arbitrary. It's quite simple for judiciary or security forces to make an accusation of terrorism, therefore justifying their removal and replacing these mayors with trustees who are obviously government appointments who then take over the the running of these municipalities. I think broader issues as well, there's considerable consternation amongst Kurds in Turkey about the events that have happened in Syria in recent months, Turkey's incursion, invasion, depending on how you want to describe it. There's enormous cross-border solidarity between Kurds in all the four countries that you mentioned, Syria, Turkey, Iran and Iraq. So Kurds in Turkey are particularly concerned at the fate of Kurdish people living in Syria and the apparatus that Turkey is putting into place. And then I guess an important factor as well is that President Erdogan has recently allied with the uh, nationalist Action Party, which is staunchly nationalist, and he now relies upon them for his political support to maintain his majority. So as long as Erdogan is relying on the Nationalist Party to remain in power, there's going to be very little impetus from the government to make any sort of concessions to Kurds regarding rights or the issues that we're covering today. Indeed, the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, that cross-border collaboration and certainly what Erdogan has meant for the Kurds, I do want to look at in far more detail but just in terms of, I suppose, day-to-day life for Kurds in Turkey. Do you see Kurds at every level of society? Are they economically equal? Tez, how would you describe day-to-day life? In the Turkish constitution, it's always been that the citizenship is equal in terms of economic and professional, any sort of pathways in that sense has never differentiated between groups. So everyone has a pretty much a Turkish name. I guess you will see in all levels of politics, if we talk about Kurdish politicians, so the AKP has always had a number of Kurdish... That's Erdogan's party. Erdogan's party. Sorry, Adalet Bekalkma Party, so Development and Justice Party of Erdogan's. Um, you've also had Turgut Özel, who was uh, a famous prime minister throughout the 80s and then climbed to the presidency until his untimely death in 1993, who was very proud of his Kurdish heritage and so forth. So that you've always had this. And I think the issue is that when a Kurdish person really starts to emphasise their Kurdish identity or their Kurdish nationalism, there's a stigma around that. And in politics, that also has brought a lot of um, Kurdish politicians into trouble with the state once they start announcing or asking for more Kurdish rights and so forth. So you're allowed to have the benefits of the state or government or the economy. As long as you don't beat the Kurdish drum. Exactly. And I think, am I right in saying that, Will? I think that's a very fair observation. There was a famous dictum put about by the People's Republican Party in the 1930s, and they said Turkey is established on the basis of unity of language, culture, and ideal. But the underlying premise of that was the language and the culture was Turkish. So if you made an attempt to assert your Kurdishness, you were stamped out. And there were several, perhaps we shouldn't go into the history in too much detail, but there were several Kurdish uprisings within 15 years of the Republic being established. But Tez is right. There's no sort of formal barrier to Kurdish people moving within Turkish society more broadly. And there's not necessarily any economic discrimination. I had a very pleasant dinner in Istinia in Istanbul, which is a very fancy neighbourhood on the Bosphorus with a Kurdish family. So these were Kurdish journalists who obviously and involved in the art scene in Turkey. There was no impediment to them 
rising through the ranks and becoming quite wealthy and well-to-do. By the same token, the woman who I was talking to at that particular dinner, she said when she was growing up, her parents spoke a language which she didn't understand and they used to say, we're speaking English. Only when she grew up later, she realised that they were actually speaking Kurdish. So her parents were embarrassed to reveal to her their children that they were actually Kurdish and it was she said that was like a light bulb moment for me like you know they were growing up I mean she's I'm not sure what age but she would have been growing up during the 60s and 70s um, so her parents at that point were seeking to deny or downplay their Kurdishness. Ali can I also say there is also a, a very obvious fact that the southeast and the south of Turkey where the Kurdish majority has always been traditionally underdeveloped economically in terms of this infrastructure. This is which Syria. Exactly. So even in 1980s under Turgut Özal's um, prime ministership where Turkey was living through this massive economic boom, the economic boom was more the industrial or urban centres like Istanbul, Ankara, Izmir, out the west, whereas the economic benefits didn't filter down to or filter out to southeast Turkey. So you've always had an economic difference, massive difference between the West and, and, and the South East. So there's always been that, but I think it was just bad economic management, bad policy. And I mean, that's not the only areas that have been economically undeveloped in Turkey either. A lot of peripheral areas have been left untouched. And Will, when you talked about that story regarding the language and hiding the fact that they were speaking Kurdish, are we able to say whether most Kurds would identify as a Kurd from Turkey or a Turk of Kurdish descent? And caught up in that is that other very obvious question is, can we talk about the Kurds as a monolithic group? Uh, well, it's a good question. When I was um, researching in Diyarbakir, which is the main Kurdish city in the southeast, I was talking to a group of Kurds and I said, I'm talking to Turkish Kurds. And one of them very firmly put his fist on the desk and he said, no, we are not Turkish Kurds. We are Kurds from Turkey. So these individuals who I was speaking to don't like to be categorised as Turkish. They see Turkish as an ethnic identity, which is separate from them, separate to their Kurdish identity. So many of that same group, they were happy to say, yes, we live within the Turkish political system. So we are citizens of Turkey, but we are Kurdish. So they don't like being called Turkish Kurds. They say we are Kurds from Turkey. Perhaps that reflects in some sense the pressure to assimilate, which has been very real with throughout Turkish history. But it also demonstrates the desire to assert their own Kurdish identity or maintain that identity despite the pressure that has been placed upon them. As to your question about talking about the Kurds or whether they're all unified, the clear answer is no. And it's unreasonable to expect Kurds to all be politically unified because no other people is anywhere around the world. But in fact, the Kurds have a reputation for being divided, politically divided. And there's a... Uh, a do, they, do they share one language and one religion? No, no. A majority of the Kurds adhere to Sunni Islam, but there is also a minority, which is Alevi, which is very loosely under the umbrella of Shia Islam. There are actually several Kurdish languages, and I'm no expert on the linguistic side of it, some of which are actually mutually not intelligible. But the two main dialects are Kurmanji, which is spoken in southeast Turkey and northern Iraq and Syria, and then Sorani, which is spoken in the east of Iraq and in Iran. Um, and to my knowledge, there's certainly clear overlaps, but 
they're not mutually intelligible, but they're both related to Persian. So in that sense, the Kurds see themselves as an Indo-European people, and in that sense, are distantly related to other European peoples. And a question that I described at the beginning of this, the Kurds as the largest minority in Turkey, what proportion of the population are they? Definitely, it's a contested um, statistic, depending on what your ideology is. So some people have said 10%, and some people have gone up and said above 20%. I guess what I've read is um, the safe sort of primary is between 15 to 17%. You're looking at that. And that 15 to 17%, Will, when you talk about cross-border collaboration, to what extent do Turkey's Kurds share ethnicity and, I suppose, ideals with other Kurds who are in Iraq and Iran and Syria? There is a very clear sense of Kurdish kinship, and I think a large degree of that amounts to the political pressures that they've come under in each country. When you see your ethnic kin being oppressed, it forges a bond, and so I've met many people who say they particularly felt strong bonds with the Iraqi Kurds when they were being oppressed by Saddam Hussein in the late 1990s, or through the 1990s and 1980s, in fact. Uh, And there's a strong bond between Kurds in Syria and Turkey. Um, Some of that is to do with political groupings and shared affiliations. And there's a word that's generally used, I think, mostly by Iraqi Kurds rather than Turkish Kurds, but the word is Kurdayeti, which is, we translate it as Kurdishness. So there's this shared sense across um, all the four countries that they share this identity. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're politically aligned. And in fact, within each country, there are different Kurdish political organisations often at loggerheads with each other within the country. Tell us about that proverb about roosters. There's a proverb that said, a Kurdish proverb that says, when there are too many roosters, the village wakes up late. And so the implication being there's been so many political leaders, leaders in inverted commas, throughout the years, Kurds don't know which person to listen to and who is their true leader and have never been able to sort of mobilise in a concerted sense and create their own state, which might have been an opportunity at the end of the First World War. Yeah, there's this common thread amongst Kurds that we're divided and if only we were united, we'd be stronger. So let's look at that question of political representation in Turkey for the Kurds. Tez? Yes, so the first real formal efforts started in the mid to late 80s with the left-leaning Social Democratic People's Party. So I'll refer to them in their Turkish acronym as SHP. And this was the first political party, mainstream political party that brought the Kurdish issue to the fore, to the agenda, and really had a lot of Kurdish MPs within its party ranks. So they were successful within the mainstream political system of Turkey? Yes, because they end up getting into coalition in the late 80s and 90s. And the party's run by um, Erdal Ünönü, whose dad, Ismet Ünönü, was the second president of Turkey. Within this period, there's a breaking off, and there's internal sort of tensions between the Kurdish group and the major party. And they end up sort of leaving to create the first pro-Kurdish rights party, which is the People's Labour Party, which is Halkan Emek Partisi, so HEP. And then in 91, they entered the election, 91 election, under the SHP, the Social Democratic People's Party, as candidates. And 21 out of their 27 candidates get into parliament in this way. So they make up actually a quarter of the SHP's parliamentary representation. So this is the actual first time we see the formal arrival of pro-Kurdish rights parliamentarians from another party. But of course, for political pragmatism, they are under they the... They work can- together. They work together. And so this is where we see the founding 
establishment of these parties. But, you know, it's a very troubled history from that point on because... Because indeed the 90s were a very dark period, weren't they? Extremely dark period. And this is, you know, 91, a handful of these Kurdish politicians, when they were taking their parliamentary oath, made the oath in Kurdish and so forth. And this was actually taken as an affront and a hostile act by the establishment. And their state prosecutors enacted investigations into them. And this investigation ended up taking off the ground in 93-94, which the centre-right parties in a coalition voted to lift these Kurdish politicians or parliamentarians' immunity. And they were thrown in jail or received sentences of 15 years for undermining the unity of the state or you know, acting on behalf of terrorist propaganda and so forth. So those two pro-Kurdish parties, what has happened to them? Have they morphed into other parties today? There's a long list of our party closures and new parties, reincarnations who are given different names, but take the mantle of this Kurdish rights, seeking Kurdish rights and so forth. So, well, where does the Kurdistan Workers' Party, the PKK, fit into all of this? So the Kurdistan Workers' Party arose in the late 1970s. The 1970s was a particularly tumultuous time in politics within Turkey. There was a great deal of violence between left and right and also an increase in Kurdish nationalist thought or a sense of Kurdish identity because it had been long suppressed through the first decades or the first four or five decades of the republic. So the PKK arose and it was led by Abdullah Öcalan and then undertook a military campaign which is often described as a terrorist campaign. Their initial goal was to free Kurdistan in all its four parts of what they termed colonialist control, being the modern states. Um, so, and when you say four parts, you mean Iraq, Iran, Syria, Turkey? Yes, yes. I mean, that was the initial goal, but it undertook its first military operations in Turkey and particularly targeted the Turkish military. And thereafter, the Turkish military responded with counter-terrorism measures and it became, I guess you could say, that a low-intensity civil war sort of developed in the southeastern corner of Turkey. So this was largely conducted in the mountains in the countryside. And the PKK undoubtedly carried out some atrocities. There can be no denying that. There was targeting of civilians, targeting of unarmed combatants, um, targeting of the Turkish military. So for that reason, the Turkish army said this is a terrorist organisation. And it still is today. That's how it's labelled? Absolutely, by the Turkish government indeed. And indeed, many governments actually recognise the the PKK as a terrorist organisation, including the Australian, the EU, US. Um, Does it have any support in Turkey from Kurds? It has considerable support. It's interesting. I remember talking to Kurds here in Melbourne in the 1990s and they said, we admire the PKK and Abdullah Öcalan, the leader, because Öcalan particularly was the first person who stood up and said proudly, I'm a Kurd. And they said that engendered or developed a sense of pride in their own Kurdishness. And I think that's still largely true. I mean, it's still classified as a terrorist organisation, but there is considerable support amongst Kurds, probably not only in Turkey, for the organisation. We don't want to get into the debate of terrorist versus freedom fighter, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any Kurd who would say, yes, it's a terrorist organisation. They see it as a military organisation that is fighting for their rights. Obviously, Turks are diametrically opposed to that sort of categorisation, but that's the way many Kurds see it. And in fact, when I was in Diyarbakir, I noticed there's pro-PKK graffiti on the walls. One place I saw PKK Halktur, which means the PKK is the people. So it's an indication, you know, many Kurds still 
um, support the PKK as defending their rights. At the same time, many Kurds in Turkey support the HDP, the People's Democracy Party, which is the main pro-Kurdish party in parliament at the moment. And it's important to point out that they're pro-Kurdish. They're not able to actually say they're um, representative representative of of the Kurds. Um, But there's an argument that goes that, well, because the Kurds never had any clear, free political avenue offered to them within Turkey, that's why the PKK developed support and appreciation from Kurds within Turkey. I'm just following on from what Will said, the state's very strong arm tactics and the securitization of the Kurdish issue, I guess I'd use quotation marks, has also at the same time created, fostered a lot of sympathy in the southeast for the PKK as well. So the Turkish state has not helped in that sense in trying to stop any sort of grassroots support. Its activities and the militarization of the issue to combat the Kurdish issue, the Kurdish nationalist issue, or the PKK, is actually fostered more sympathy. And and I'd add to that um, a recently published book by Ezgi Basharan, who's a Turkish journalist of Turkish ethnicity, examining the war. But she actually spent some time in PKK camps in northern Iraq, and she said the the people that she spoke to who had joined the PKK, she said every single one of them had a story of repression by Turkish authorities or security apparatus or someone who was murdered or someone who was abducted or their village was destroyed. So it goes exactly to Tez's point that repressive measures that the Turkish state put in place rather than quelling the problem, to some degree, has exacerbated and the problem. So there's um, a, a recent study um, by Dennis Chifchi, who's a Turkish academic, um, talking about you know the Kurds, in his book, The Kurds and the Politics of Turkey. He did a study of the Kurds in major cities, and he said that even though the young generation between 16 to 25, who linguistically can't speak any Kurdish dialect, or have never really visited the southeast where their grandparents or their parents are from, there's a level of radicalization or Kurdish nationalism arising given the current very pro-nationalistic and anti-Kurdish policies of the AKP government under Erdogan. So it's actually having the reverse effect. They're actually hugging the Kurdish identity more and more because of what they're seeing the government is doing towards their kin in the southeast as well. It's Simmel's rule. Simmel was a German sociologist and he said the degree of internal solidarity depends on the degree of external pressure. So the more pressure you put on people to say, no, you can't be this or you must do that, the more they, you know, hope to each other. Yeah. Yes, the react, push back. Yeah. Yes. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Dr. Tezjan Gumush of Asia Institute and Dr. William Gorley of Monash University. We're talking about the Kurds of Turkey and their long and rocky struggle for political recognition. We've talked extensively about the PKK, but just in terms of very recent history, Tez, what has President Erdogan meant for the Kurds? Because initially there were real efforts towards some sort of peace process, wasn't there? We have to also take a broader view as well in terms of looking at Erdogan and his AKP government's initiatives early on in terms of democratisation. So between their first period and when they got elected from 2002 to 2007, it was seen as a golden years of Turkish democracy, where the AKP really made a strong effort to democratise the system or liberalise the system. And within that, you see a loosening up on use of Kurdish language. So the government allowed and set up a state broadcaster in Kurdish language, so 24-hour news broadcaster and so forth. So you saw a much more loosening up of Kurds being able to speak their language through formal institutions as the state broadcaster and so forth. 
And then in mid-2000s, we see, I guess, the Kurdish Peace Initiative, where it was pretty much bilateral, where we see it between the government and intelligence agency and, I guess, representatives of the PKK. And then the HTP parliamentarians got involved. But it was, I guess, bilateral. And there was no third-party mediator, like an international mediator. This was done behind closed doors. You know, there was no transparency. So what was being said and what was being offered was not an inclusive dialogue with broader Kurdish community and Turkish community in that sense. So we see between 2012, 2014, like two, three years of relative peace where the PKK came to a ceasefire and so forth. But when the issue in Syria and northern Syria where the Kurdish majority reside and really start impacting that, what the Kurds might have seen much more sort of hostile reaction towards the PYD, uh, which is the... Democratic Unity Party. Yes, thank Syria. you, Will. Yeah. And seeing the Turkish government being hostile towards them in their fight against ISIS and not supporting them, but being much more sympathetic towards ISIS was, I guess, what was the thought. Really kicked off a lot of, I guess, hostility between both sides in Turkey, where we saw a very quick crumbling of the peace process and back to full sort of, I guess, combat or war between the two sides. At the same time, wasn't the 2015 election a game changer? Ah, yes. So what we see in 2015 of June, the first election of 2015, we see HTP, so the Kurdish or the pro-Kurdish rights party, become the third largest party in parliament with just over 13% of the vote. And And that meant Erdogan lost his majority. Yes, Erdogan actually lost his majority, but there was inability to form a coalition. And I guess Erdogan didn't want to form a coalition with another party. And can I just interrupt? Because, Will, you were there, weren't you, for these elections? I was there in June 2015, that's correct, in Diyarbakir. And I'd actually been warned by people in Istanbul not to go to Diyarbakir during the election. And I it was a bit of, again, Simul's rule. They Why? told me I shouldn't go, so I'm going. Because they were concerned that there's a threshold in Turkish politics. If a party doesn't get 10% of the vote, it wins no seats in the across the country. This was the first time that a Kurdish party had actually run in its own right in an attempt to pass the threshold. This was the idea of Selahattin Demirtas, who was the then leader of the HDP, who... Previously, the way to get around that, sorry, Will, was as independence. Yeah. So you can... You if don't you're an independent, independent, you don't need that. You don't yes. need that. Yeah. So yeah. what the Kurdish HDP or beforehand and previous other parties would do was enter their candidates as independents and then once they got in... They'd, they'd create, work together. Yeah, they work together in parliament. So sorry, Will. No, yeah, that's all right. But I would suggest that the people suggesting that I don't get there were demonstrating some sort of prejudice against Kurds being unruly and wild and unable to control. So they were control. saying that if they lost the if election... If they lose, it's it going to be a, disaster. a bun fight. Um, and as it turns out, I went back to my hotel room after the polls closed and after some time, and I was on Twitter, it was my only sort of form of keeping up with news, and after some time there were bangs and whistles outside and I was thinking, oh, and I'd previously spoken to a Kurdish shop owner and I said, what's going to happen in the election? And he said, ya savash, ya barash, it'll either be peace or war. And so I'm thinking, is this savash, is this war or is it barash? And it turns out it was firecrackers and there probably were some firearms, but whistles and bass drums and I went outside and Diyarbakir went off. Because the HDP did incredibly well in the 2015 elections. It did incredibly well and it got 13% of the vote, as Tez said, and leapt into parliament. So there was then this five-month hiatus because Erdogan could not put together a coalition and there was another vote. But what happened in that five months? In that five months, there was this massive explosion of violence in terms of ISIS attacks and PKK attacks in urban cities. 
So there was a massive level of insecurity felt by the country and society. So it was like, oh my God, we don't have a government at the moment and everything in society is falling apart. There's terrorist attacks going off with ISIS, PKK and so forth. And so this level of insecurity, it seemed to work in Erdogan's favour. But, but what was the motivation of the PKK? I mean, they'd just done incredibly well, not the PKK, but obviously the the Kurd sympathetic party, the HDP. So what was the motivation for those attacks? in that five-month period. I think there's a level of thinking that the PKK was also sort of unhappy to see the HDP rise in the ranks and overpass it as being the number one representative of the Kurdish voice in Turkey in the political process. So they were always happy to re-engage in violence, as the Turkish side was as well, to react and say, okay, well, it's not working, let's go back to violence. So there is that level of thinking that the PKK just wasn't happy with the HTP and Selatin Demirtas' rising star and through his charisma and his appeal to be the leading voice. So there is that sense that this is why they were happy to sort of engage in the violence very, very quickly. Do you, do you think that that sense is a fair representation? Although I'm not a PKK sort of uh, researcher, I would definitely think there's some level of rationality in that as well, definitely. And also, to be outshone because for decades I've seen themselves as being... The, the core. The core, yes. Mm. yeah. And I guess To carry the mantle. Well, at the same time, as Tez just said, it allowed Erdogan to play that terrorist, we need stability, we need a strong government card. So it was in their interests, I guess, to allow this instability. I might put in an alternative score of thought. I think there's elements of truth in what Tez is saying. There's certainly competition between the HDP and the PKK. But others say that uh, there was a, an ISIS bombing in Suruç, which is just on the Turkey's southern, southern border, just north of Kobani, which is a city many listeners will be familiar with, which was besieged by ISIS in 2014. And that's when the Kurdish YPG not wanting to use too many Akron's, um forces, began their fight back against ISIS and won US support. So there were these groups of Kurds from Turkey who were going through Suruç and planning to help in the rebuilding of Kobani. And then there was a bombing carried out by ISIS operatives, and I think there was 32 or 35 people. Yeah, and they're all young. Predominantly, they were all youth activists, like yeah, in their yeah, 20s or yeah, late teens. Yeah. And they probably weren't all Kurdish. You know, they would, no, no, would yeah, have been left-leaning, yeah, yeah. you know, we need to help our Kurdish brothers. Yeah. There's this allegations that Turkish security forces turned a blind eye to ISIS because they thought, oh, well, here's Kurdish activists. We'll let them blow them up. The PKK then reacted to that and killed several Turkish policemen. And some say, well, that was the trigger. The Turkish army said, right, we're not going to stand for this. Given the context of the government losing its majority, the pro-Kurdish party on the ascendant, and there's a school of thought within Turkey that some of those very valid points that Tez made earlier, some of the initiatives that Erdogan put in place with regard to the Kurds, which were definitely positive, you know, reforms and reviewing the issue as a political issue rather than a security issue, some Kurds alleged that all he was doing was trying to curry favour with Kurds. You know, he just wanted to win the Kurdish vote so he could get his supermajority and become president. And then some say, well, when the Kurds actually went, well, no, we don't actually support you and we're going to follow the HDP, there was a bit of Erdogan throwing his hands in the air and saying, if you're not going to support me, I'm going to stamp on you. And that with government encouragement, the conflict re-escalated. Very quickly. Say, very quickly. I have to say the PKK carried out a strategic absolute blunder by taking the conflict for the first time ever into cities. So previously, 
the conflict had been carried out in villages, mountains, etc. But they went into cities like Diyarbakir, Shiyanak, Jizre, etc. And there was also, you know, that big bombing in Ankara, in the middle of Ankara, at the bus stop, where it killed like 25, 26 people by yep. a certain wing of the yep. Takti, A.K. Yeah, yeah. Tuck. So, so the end result of this, Tez, was that Erdogan got his majority back. Of course. Let's look at the voting patterns of Kurds. Predominantly, they've always voted for conservative religious parties. So throughout the 90s, Refah Party, this is a welfare party, which Erdogan comes from, a, a traditional um, Islamist party, was the main vote um, getter for, of the Kurds. So now with Erdogan, there's this contest between his party, AKP, and the HCP for the votes of the Kurds, because a lot of Kurds, what's said, is that you know, they're much more traditional and conservative and pious, so a party like the AKP appeals to them. And when he realized that he was losing to the HCP, especially in the southeast, which are valuable seats, parliamentary numbers for him, uh, you know, it sort of suited him to crush or weaken the HTP enough where they have stopped acting as a strong opposition force. Well, it would indeed today, what is the situation with the HDP, uh, particularly, as you said earlier, after the attempted coup against Erdogan in 2016, that crackdown certainly extended to the Kurds as it did to anyone who looked like they were an opposing force. But what's the role of the HDP today? Do they still have parliamentary members? Of course, yes. So in 2016, after the attempted coup in July, there was a state of emergency which gave Erdogan as president power of decree to sort of pump through legislation and run the country in that sense and run policy and laws and make policy on the run. Under the moniker of fighting terrorism in a state of emergency, the HTP and its parliamentarians were targeted specifically. There was 154 parliamentarians who had outstanding investigations, but because of parliamentary immunity, they weren't able to be investigated. 154 of them were removed of their immunity and 55 were from the HTP. The only people that were targeted were the 55 from the HTP immediately. And so what we see is immediate incarceration of Selatin Demirtas. And, who uh, was the co-founder? Yes, a, a co-leader. And uh, Figen Yüksekdar, who was his co-leader. So, And they were immediately thrown in jail under terrorism charges and also nine members, 11 in total. And they're still... I think most of them are in jail, including So it's significantly weakened as a party. And what you saw at the same time was there was a law passed in August 2016 under President Decree, which is Article 45 and 57 of the law, which also allows the government to effectively remove mayors, the government accused of supporting terrorism, however unsubstantiated. And we see immediate attack on the southeast areas which were held by HDP and HDP's regional arm. So Erdogan has removed a number of those democratic Exactly, immediately. And um, it was a purge of 85 out of 103 municipalities in the southeast held by the HDP. So this is a massive attack overnight under the state of emergency laws. So we see a very direct attack at weakening the HDP from 2016 onwards. And so, Will, what is it that Erdogan is worried about? You know, what's the threat from the Kurds? I don't know that it's necessarily a threat from the Kurds, but I think he needs to retain power through any means. I'm no expert on this, but there's a school of thought that he has been extremely corrupt and while serving, he enriched himself and his family and his cronies and if he ever loses power, he will be prosecuted for that. So he needs to retain power through any means possible. And as I said before, you know, he was attempting to court the Kurdish vote to maintain his power. The other significant minority bloc, I guess you would call it, within the Turkish electorate is the nationalist vote. So the hardline 
Turks who say, some of whom probably to this day still say, no, there's no such thing as a Kurd, and if we acknowledge any Kurdishness, it's the rupture of the country, etc., etc. So some argue that he's switched his focus from the Kurds to the nationalists. Like, well, okay, I need the nationalist vote to maintain a majority, and in that sense... It's quite simple, you know, it's quite simple to make these accusations of terrorism because broadly speaking, the Turkish nationalists, you know, take take that as a given and agree and say, yes, we need to ally with, with Erdogan because he's the one who's fighting against these terrorists or separatists or all these sort of words which were very common in the 1990s. Well, that's, it was, you just used the word separatist. Is there an appetite for separatism among Kurds in Turkey? I would say... There is some, but I think it is minor. In fact, there was a study undertaken by Dool Ergil, who's a professor of politics in Ankara. In 1995, I was living in Izmir at the time, and he was the first one who actually surveyed Kurds. There was always resistance to surveying Kurds prior to that because a lot of people denied there were actually any Kurds. To give you the context of the 90s and how bad it was in terms of rights, I think Dool Ergil was investigated for terrorist propaganda for making the report. Yes, exactly and right. So, yeah, just Merely to show, for making the report. Yes, yeah. Yeah, even though an academic making a very academic yeah. study. So yeah. just to give you context of yeah. the 90s, how brutal it was in yeah. terms of rights. Yeah. So he and his research team went into three Kurdish-majority provinces, Diyarbakir, Van and Batman, I think was the third one, and they surveyed, I think there was it was around 12,000 Kurds, and they, they asked them a range of questions, but many of them related to the PKK and political processes. And they found that while the majority of the Kurds they interviewed or surveyed supported the PKK, they saw it as a political vehicle. And in his report, he even uses a train analogy. He said, you know, the PKK is a train and the final station might be separatism. But there's other stations along the way, and that might be political representation. It might be a reversal of oppression by the state or an acknowledgement. So they see the PKK as a vehicle for their political ambitions, not necessarily separatism. So there were, even I... then, that, and that was when the PKK struggle was at its peak, there was only a very small minority of Kurds, there was something like 11 or 12% who said, yes, we need separatism. And I was going to say, though, that the ecstatic nature of the response to the election victory in 2015 that you witnessed, Will, that would seem to underline, wouldn't it, that separatism is not high on the agenda, that playing within the mainstream Turkish political system is higher. Exactly. That's how I would put it. There was a rally that I went to prior to the election, enormous mass of people walking through Diyarbakir, and as they went, they were chanting, Önce Baraj Sonra Saray, meaning first we'll pass the threshold, the 10% threshold, then we'll take the palace, or, you know, we'll have a president. So that indicates to me that it's not necessarily a storming of the palace, it's like, you know, politics is freeing up, and one day there could be a Kurdish president. So my argument, in fact, it's the main theme of my book, which will come out in July, um, <laughs> is if there is true democracy or if Kurds are able to carry out politics as they wish, then they don't necessarily want or need an independent Kurdish state. Okay. And, and so, Will, sorry, the, the name of your book for those who are interested in reading? The Kurds in Erdogan's Turkey. The Kurds in Erdogan's Turkey. Tez, uh, do so, you agree with that assessment? Yeah, of course. I, I agree with that, uh, definitely. And I just wanted to touch upon what Will said at the end, that the state has always seen Kurdish nationalism or aspirations for more Kurdish rights as an existential threat. And I think it really goes back to the history and the creation of the Turkish Republic and the fear that has always 
carried on until today. Hence why it's always predominantly been approached in a very securitised manner. Well, what do you think the Kurds can pin their hopes on for a brighter future in Turkey? And you certainly indicated at the very beginning of this conversation that's not under Erdogan. I don't know that anyone other than AKP loyalists have a bright future in Turkey while Erdogan remains in place. So that's, you know, whether you're a leftist or you're a fighting for equal rights for gays or women or whatever it might be, while Erdogan's in place, he's going to pull any trick he can to stay in place for the reasons I explained. And again, I'm not an expert on his business dealings, but there's a considerable weight of evidence. So he's going to use whatever ruse he can to remain in power. That means playing to the nationalist base because they're kind of soft target. It's pretty easy to say terrorist, separatist, and you know segments within the Turkish electorate will rally to his cause. By the same token, he's losing popularity and perhaps he's ratcheting up or going to ratchet up his his rhetoric, you know, and including his foreign policy adventures, which are getting more unwieldy as the days pass. But the economy is tanking. And that was another part of Erdogan's popularity. In the early years, the economy was booming. And as the economy tanks, the AKP, Erdogan's party, is losing popularity. And other politicians are winning support. And the most important example of that, I think, is Ekrem Imamoglu, who recently won the mayoralty in Istanbul. And he's enormously popular. Um, There were shenanigans from Erdogan determining that there was subterfuge in the first election, so we need to have a rerun. And so they had the rerun, and lo and behold, Imamolu increased his majority. So I think it shows that there's an appetite for change within the Turkish populace. And I think Imamolu also is a very inclusive politician, and he's actually made gestures to the Kurds, and he's travelled to Diyarbakir, and he understands that the hardline approaches, which Erdogan is now pursuing, are counterproductive. What we can't deny is the HTP's massive influence on political culture in Turkey. That given that the way they do politics, especially Selahattin Demirtas, is a very charismatic leader and appealed to a very broad spectrum of people in Turkey. So even though they were, they've yes. been significantly weakened, exactly. they are still a real so presence. This is the, so what's been shown is the way that Imamoglu, Ekrem Imamoglu was able to win, especially with this larger margin second time around, second vote around, was that HTP actually got behind him was basically said they didn't put up a candidate to not split the vote and Selahattin Demirtas from jail made a call to his voters to vote for Ekrem Imamoglu as the mayor. So what we're seeing in Turkey in the last couple of years, and I'm sort of myself and another colleague at Melbourne University doing, is looking at how the opposition in the face of Erdogan's growing authoritarianism is informally and formally aligning themselves to be able to fight off Erdogan. And that is an entirely... New podcast. (laughs) But for the Kurds, is that their best hope? There's massive differences within the Turkish opposition groups, identity-wise and so forth, and political ideology. But they need to realise that they need to come to agreement and some sort of alliance to be able to overthrow or fight off Erdogan's system. And I think that is HTP's and Turkey's opposition's main hope. And with that, you would hopefully get better rights for Kurds and other people in Turkey as well. Well, I look forward very much to having you both back in the studio to talk about Turkish politics more broadly. But thank you so much for your insights today. Thanks very much, Ali. Thank you, Ali. It's been fantastic. 
Our guests have been politics and international relations expert Dr William Gourlay from Monash University and Turkish politics researcher Dr Tezjan Gumush of Asia Institute, the University of Melbourne. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 21st of February, 2020. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2020, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.